Okay, uh, welcome to the 21st Century Schizoid Podcast. Um, it's a real pleasure to have uh, Dr. Jenny Catania join us today. She is Associate Professor at the Jackson School of Geosciences here at the University of Texas. And uh, we're going to dive a little bit into uh, climate change. Um, Dr. Catania's research is primarily focused on uh, sort of, I guess, what is it, the, the cryosphere? Would that be accurate? Yeah. I, I really like that word, actually. Okay. So. <laughs> we'll talk about it. We'll go with that. Um, so to start off, I mean, I'm really, really appreciate you taking the time to come and join us today because this is a topic that I think is super important, and I don't think that the science really is out there. You know what I mean? It's been so politicized in the media for so long, and I just want to kind of get to the you know nitty-gritty facts, like what what exactly is occurring and, you know, get the data out there mm-hmm. more so than anything, because this feels like a topic that's probably, man, second to healthcare is <laughs> probably like the most contentious, you know, politicized topic that I can think of. Well, maybe um, gun rights. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's true. <laughs> Certainly in Texas. Yeah. Um, but let's just kind of start out with maybe some general ideas. Um, so we always hear about this consensus of 97% of, of scientists say that, you know, glo- uh, climate change is occurring, mm-hmm. right? I've heard that that's inaccurate. I mean, is that, that's just kind of like a, a meme at this point that people are parroting? Or do you, do you have any insight into this con- scientific consensus just in a general sense? Yeah, there have been, I'm trying to think, I think maybe three or more studies by scientists to quantify the consensus. So one of them was done by uh, Naomi Oreskes, and she looked at all of the published literature on climate science and found that overwhelmingly it was um, saying that humans are changing the climate. And then, I don't don't remember percentages and numbers very well. certainly. And then there have been two that I know of, I think maybe even more, that were studies that were done that were actual surveys sent out to a broad range of people, mostly scientists, but they also got lay people's opinions as well. And what they showed was that as you got more and more educated formally about climate science, that your um, perception of humans changing the climate became more strong. So the people who were more firmly on the side of humans changing the climate were people who were closest to the topic, like atmospheric scientists studying climate change, research scientists studying climate change. People who were more um, not sure were less educated in that field. Interesting. But yeah, the number of 97% is pretty accurate. It's overwhelmingly supported in science. And this is, and to clarify too, this is not just that it's occurring. This is that human activity is is contributing significantly, right? Right, both. Because I think that gets lost. I think we've we've actually made some ground that people are acknowledging that this is happening, but now it's kind of the um, the counter argument is that you know this is a natural process and the obviously the climate's always changing. Well, yes, right. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly, I think that's understood mm-hmm. um, by the discipline, you know, as a, as a whole. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, there's just lots of. Uh, there's lots of evidence for supporting the idea that humans are doing it and that the rate, so for one, the rate of change more recently is um, unprecedented. 
in terms of this amount of CO2. The rate of CO2 added to the atmosphere is unprecedented in the last 400,000 years. We have more CO2 than has been observed in ice core records over the last 400,000 years um, by almost double. And so, you know, just seeing that on its own is like, oh, that's right, unusual. That's pretty staggering, certainly. <laughs> and then the rate of change is um, well correlated to the rate of uh, fossil fuel burning. And then the, there's an isotopic chemical kind of signature or a chemical fingerprint of burning of fossil fuels that is uh, observed in the chemistry of the atmosphere. Um, so you can say that these chemicals are actually because of um, fossil fuel burning and they're not because of like volcanoes right. or uh. any other natural process. And then we also have, you know, not perfect, but pretty decent models of how the earth works. Um, they're very not perfect, right. but there's, there's a wide number of them run by many different groups. And what they do are these kind of ensemble models. So they take, you know, say there's 10 models, they all have different ways of representing processes in these models. And they say, okay, let's run this model with natural variability only and see what kind of temperatures we get uh, for the present day. And then uh, they get an envelope of the solution, and that's what they say is like the best. Right. There's the kind of a range of yeah. this. To, yeah. From these range of models. Right. And then they run them again, and they say, okay, well, now if we add fossil fuel burning into this equation, you know, how does it look? And you get a much better match, even given the uncertainty in the models of like the range of different models that there are. You get a much better match to the actual temperature observations that are happening when you include both natural variability and the human-induced burning of fossil fuels. And what you see is that a lot of the variability, there is a lot of variability. There's a lot of noise in the system, but that around 1970, there was this really large departure in temperatures, and that's due to humans. How I feel like some, you know, some of this noise in the data um, that we do get is, I mean, it's a relatively. How old would you say? the study of climate at, at this scale is? Because I feel like it's a more, re you know what I mean? It's not something that we really considered maybe in, in the 19th century, for example. No. Does that make sense? Um, I don't really know much about the history of it, but people were always curious about why, you know, explaining Earth observations. So why are there huge boulders in the middle of areas that are not currently glaciated? Well, they said, well, there are huge ice sheets that came and moved them. And so there's always been explorers that have tried to deduce why the Earth looks the way it does or counting tree rings and thinking, oh, those must be age horizons. And then we can look at when it was last rainy for an extensive period of time. And so putting those kind of more coarse records together with more modern tools has been this progress of science right. over the last hundred years or so. And, you know, I think we have a much better grasp on uh, the climate system at this point. There's still quite a few uncertainties. And those uncertainties, I think, are what the uh, politicians latch on to. I actually don't, aside from Fox News, I don't really see where this is a debate in the media right. anymore. Um, right now, what I'm seeing is actually more, I mean, I'm, I guess, like, because I'm looking mostly at um, the New York Times and the Washington Post, but those two papers tend to report on actual things that are happening because of climate change. There was a cool article about, I think it was um, the Carolina coast, showing that during really high tides, some of the roads are flooding, you know, right now. Climate change is one of these things where it's like, um, 
Have you heard of the analogy of the frog in the pot? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's very slow. And so you can get used to changes very easily because they're happening so slowly. And you think, right. oh, well, now our roads are getting flooded a little more frequently. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, we guess we can't use those roads anymore. <laughs> And then you just kind of get used to it. But if we're not doing anything about these slow changes, then down the road, 100 years from now, we're talking really large changes um, that are much harder to adapt to. I want to back up a second because um, you mentioned ice core samples earlier. Is that something that your research has, have you actually investigated that directly or is that more, that's kind of outside, is that outside of what you're specific? Because I know yours is more remote sensing based and kind of radar. Yeah, like most that. of my work is actually focused on understanding glacier variability. So don't I don't actually collect ice cores. Right. Um, but my I do use a whole bunch of different tools, including the ones you mentioned, to try to understand what makes ice move, and in particular, what makes it move fast. Because when it can move quickly, it can evacuate the ice sheets quickly and drain into the oceans and cause rapid sea level rise. And right now, the biggest uncertainty for... Um, Sea level rise is coming from the ice sheet contribution. We don't we know how much ice there is, but we don't know the rate at which it's going to be melting and contributing to sea level rise. Um, so that's what I'm kind of focused on is, is okay. in particular the glaciers that drain to the ocean because they're the fastest in the world. Right. Um, I was kind of doing a little bit of, of research and just looking at the variability of, I guess, sea level rise, and I really I felt kind of dumb actually. Because I, you know, didn't even think of concepts like what is it, um, thermal expansion and like the variability of not only it's like the land mass is not a static, mm -hmm. uh, you know, piece of ground that stays at the same elevation. You know, it's always changing due to tectonic activity, and mm -hmm. so you know you can have maybe a, a pretty broad swing of sea level in a specific area, but that doesn't necessarily correlate to an overall sea level rise, necessarily. Well, it's but, not even evenly distributed. Right. You get more sea level rise in certain places compared to others, depending on the changes that are happening locally. Um, but a lot of those processes are also pretty well constrained, especially thermal con expansion. <laughs> expansion. Yeah, right, it's a mouthful. <laughs> thermal expansion is pretty well constrained. Um, but it's, it's really that we don't have a good understanding of the processes that contribute to ice motion that I think are the big the big uh, elephant in the room. And so if we want to know what's sea level rise, what's sea level going to be in 100 years from now, you know, the biggest uncertainty comes from the ice sheets, not from thermal expansion. Interesting. Um, so that's kind of where I am focusing my research. But um, it also seems a little, I mean, to get a little political, it seems a little moot in today's climate. Certainly, right. Because <laughs> no one's really doing anything about the problem, let alone like how to mitigate against some of these impacts right i mean that's how my argument is always you know regardless i mean if, if, regardless of humans are contributing to this process or it's a natural process it's happening mm -hmm. right <laughs> so let's take steps to mitigate its effects because i feel like the but it's important to know that humans are the cause because I, then no, it, it gives us some um, uh, better tools for right. fixing the problem if we were to just say oh we don't know let's just build big dams those dams aren't going to work as well as reducing co2 emissions that's a fair point i think mm -hmm. yeah i'm glad you brought that up um but i'm just saying in terms of like the mindset of the lay person i guess would be like this is something that's happening because i don't even think that a lot of people understand that maybe that this is even a process that's occurring like mm -hmm. it's it's this conspiracy and that's kind of where we're at in the 
in the kind of general populace when they discussed this, which is kind of scary. Um, but anyways. <laughs> yeah, I have lots of people, because I, I was just traveling across the country and staying in a lot of Airbnbs and meeting you know, just locals. And um, a lot of people ask me if I believe in it. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell them it's not a belief. <laughs> <laughs> right? I've, there's, a, there's like a misunderstanding in terms of what, I mean, just the basic understanding of what the scientific method is. It's like, yeah. this is not some objective, you know, stone tablet that is brought down and is always yeah. going to be this static, you know, piece of information. It's like, this is going to change, obviously, as we get, you know, a better picture of what's happening. And, and there is scientific bias, you know, it's not that we're not human. Right. <laughs> um, but I think even with the, the, you know, the way that we deal with that bias is by putting error bars on stuff and by doing multiple studies that all confirm the same result by repeating analysis. And that's all part of the scientific method. And so it, it ends up being a pretty rigorous process for evaluating the truth of something. And this work has been ongoing for decades now um, with thousands of people. To think that it's a conspiracy would require a level of planning and um, <laughs> organization that I don't think scientists are really capable of, you know, right. I mean, or humans are even capable of to have it be a worldwide conspiracy of scientists is just ludicrous to me. <laughs> You know, what's funny is actually um, along this conspiracy line on the, on the reverse side is that I've actually heard that a lot, uh, a lot of the scientists that were used to justify, I guess, like smoking mm. during like what they were like putting out pro smoking studies back in like the 50s, 60s, 70s are now like those, a lot of the same scientists are putting out these papers. So it's kind of challenging oh. climate science, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, is driven by special interests. You know, we have um, huge um, subsidies for uh, gasoline, for example, um, compared to Europe. You know, we pay way less for gasoline um, because of the government subsidies that go toward it. And there's huge numbers of lobbyists that uh, fight for those subsidies to remain and for the industry to be a vital industry in America. Um, there aren't similar subsidies for, say, renewable energy. And so we don't have as many lobby lobbyists for that. And so I actually put a lot of the blame into the, the lobby world um, for fighting for things mostly because of economic gain and not because of what's actually good for the world, you know? Certainly. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, Just we to do get a little political. <laughs> well, we do have, I mean, we are in a world where the CEO of Exxon is our secretary of state, which yeah. in itself, I mean, it's to an me, alternate reality. I find that really offensive that the that something like that can happen. I mean, that's just kind of like an I've said, you know, even before on the podcast, that's kind of a naked capitalist kind of yeah <laughs> thing that really scares me. Um, I mean, there's also there's, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm going to come across as a bleeding heart liberal right. in this podcast. I'm from well, Canada, <laughs> and that it's sort of just in my blood. Um, but there's a real like uh, the um, religious right also feels very strongly that um, it's impossible for humans to influence the planet on the scale that we're proposing. And there's a philosophical argument about how only God can really do that kind of thing. And so I think there, there may actually be a belief system from that community of people who think that there's, it's just impossible to fathom that humans are, are capable of anything that grandiose. Right. And certainly the incremental, you know, you know, effects and 
whatnot are really difficult. Like you said, you know, that analogy of, of the frog in the pot is, mm -hmm. is just so apt, I think, to, to capture why this is such a challenge to kind of bring to light and bring, you know, more of a, a political consensus or, or what have you. Um, but you know what I think is also telling is, I believe it, I want to say that it's Shell, maybe it's Exxon, but they're like raising their platforms in the North, Atl in the North Atlantic, or maybe it's the North Sea. You know, they've raised their the oh, drilling platforms like 10 feet and what have you. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, if these industries are taking this seriously, you know, that, that something's out of, out of whack there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was an expose in, oh, I can't remember where it was, but it was about um, Exxon and I believe the Kaiser Foundation, or no, it was the Rockefellers that were involved. Um, I, can't, I can't remember exactly how it all happened, but somehow the Rockefellers exposed the leaders of Exxon knowing about climate change, knowing that this was um, real science that they actually confirmed and believed in. Um, to use that word, and <laughs> yet they covered it up. Right. And so uh, that was in, a, in an article. I can't remember where it was. It was like a New Yorker kind of magazine article that I read and it didn't get as much wide coverage as I had hoped. Um, I thought that it would be like, oh, finally, they're all admitting that they're covering <laughs> it up, you know, but, um, right. but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't go very far, especially in today's political climate. I think people... People are much more worried about immediate problems, and politicians are worried about the four-year election cycle. Certainly. So climate change is just always on the back burner. Right. Definitely with the kind of the short—I mean, that's kind of one thing that gives me pause about capitalism. It's like this short-sighted, quarterly-based approach to growth and, you know, just not having any sense of a longer-term plan or, or well this is, is... I, actually what i see as our our missed opportunity there's a lot of opportunity in climate change also there's opportunity for engineering solutions scientific solutions for business solutions there's opportunity for all kinds of people to gain financially from providing you know better ways of living that can be adopted by governments and that's what I, I feel like our political system is, is kind of stomping down on is the capitalism of climate change could actually be a, a real solution. And, and right now, you know, we're at a point where we have to think of all the different solutions to help with this problem, yeah, including I mean, it's not be adaptation. One, yeah. Right. And so if we're not embracing this as an opportunity, I feel like we're missing out. You know, Germany, I think Germany now leads in terms of, um, of renewables. Um, in, like economically. And I think that's a shame because there's a lot of industry in the U.S. that could have easily adapted to this as a market, um, but they've really missed the boat on it because they've politicized it. Right. And I think it's something that's easy to argue on their point. You know what I mean? It's like, well, the, you know what I mean? Because it's kind of like the people that get impacted by, like if we do a carbon tax or tax externalities or, and things like that, approaches like that are going to impact the lower income folks the most, right? In terms of fuel costs, you know, heating, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Which I think is kind of a, you know what I mean? That's, those, those costs are going to get passed on. I mean, I feel like that's kind of our, under this kind of capitalist system, like that's our best option is to do, you know, a carbon tax or some type of taxing the externalities of, of in industry. 
Yeah, I don't feel like they have to get passed on to the little person right. because the CEOs are making a lot of money. <laughs> um, and it's it's just sort of how we operate in America, you know, is by passing it on to the little person instead of just saying, okay, well, instead of doing that, you know, we don't need to make, you know, seven-figure salaries. Let's right. try to do something that, you know, makes it a little more reasonable. I mean, nobody's nobody at that level is willing to do that, Right, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, their approach is, you know, if we don't pay these guys as much money as possible, then people will suffer in the end, which is counterintuitive. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know enough about the economics of it Me to really, to really grasp it um, and really, you know, bring up a, a strong argument. But well, I know that that is kind of the, I don't know, it's kind of like, I, I feel like their, the libertarian approach is... You know, there are flaws in capitalism, but you're a lot better off <laughs> in this unfair system than you, it would be a lot more unfair if this, if we were doing something else, for example. But it needs checks and balances, right? right? So yeah. it's fine to have whatever economic structure in a country that any country wants to have, but you still need to have a political system that acts for the good of the people long term. Right. And that's where I've really lost my faith is in the politicians. Um, I even wrote to Obama and I got a letter back from him. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but I was still disappointed with his response because, you know, he didn't really do much for climate. And granted, he couldn't do much, period, the whole time he was in office. Um, and he did do quite a bit. But that one issue is one that I felt like he could have. Um, push harder on and he didn't um, and so yeah I'm disappointed that the politicians who are supposed to be acting in our best interest are actually more acting in the interest of capitalism and the economy um, and and saying that that's for people's best interest when right. it actually isn't and the healthcare debate is a very um, great example of that too I think you look at the number of uninsured under these new plans and it just goes skyrocketing I don't think that's in the best interest of people. I mean, I think that's certainly kind of the great critique that, you know, I think a lot of conservatives will defend the economic system as, you know, this is, um, excuse me, this is crony capitalism that we're experiencing. Like, there's, it's a defect because of the government or what have you, but I think the critique that I align with is that, you know, it's the problem is these corporations and capital gets concentrated and then they just collude with the government to, mm -hmm. you know, be more profitable or, you know, they get legislation to minimize competition or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's this lobby, lobby industry. Right. If they could somehow get rid of that. <laughs> but, you know, so there's been a kind of a movement in the science community for scientists running for office. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, there's not a huge number of, of us that are trying to do that, but I think people have seen that this is, um, you know, after the Trump election, this is going nowhere, and we need people who believe in science to <laughs> go forward. So there are some people who are, are like, trying to do stuff like that. Um, yeah. I think that's an important point because that that's, you know what I mean, our... All the politicians really, you know, so many, it's almost entirely law, you know, mm -hmm. profession-wise or, or lawyers. And <laughs> those aren't the people that actually, they don't know anything about solving issues. You know what I mean? It's the technicians. The technicians are the people that solve problems, mm -hmm. right? It's the researchers that are, you know, looking into 
you know, cancer research. Those are the people that are making the changes. Are you, you know what I mean? They're well, doing I'm the always a big fan of having an orchestra of people. So Certainly. you have tuba players and you have people who play the cello and you need a big range of skill sets. And right now we do have it kind of swayed maybe more toward the legal end of things in the political system. And it would be nice to have more of a scientific viewpoint. There are some doctors who are politicians. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to have a, a more balanced perspective on humanity and the political <laughs> right. system. And certainly, I mean, even just the diversity of ideas, I think it, everyone benefits yeah. from that in, you know, in any scale, whether it be a, a town like Austin. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like the diver diversity of opinion because people get entrenched in, in these ide ideological structures and they can't think outside of that, right? So mm -hmm. it's like we need a fresh approach to this problem and people from outside industries or countries or experiences can really open up a whole new set of uh, a, a new way of looking at problems, mm -hmm. which I think is important. Yeah. And I don't think we get that. We don't have a lot of diversity of opinion. Yeah, that's a very big city um, idea. It's just interesting when I was traveling across the country, you know, driving through all these small towns, and these are the small towns I voted for Trump, and there's lots of pro-Trump signs out there. And so these people are just not, they're just very, living very different lives than Certainly. you and I who are living in a big city who appreciate those kind of things that the big city brings, like diversity. Um, and so, it, you know, how to reach those people, I think, is really the big problem. Right. Especially when the issue becomes politicized. Because I would love to have an honors conversation with people about science. Um, but it becomes a political issue very quickly. Right. Um, so I've tried to do a lot of more public talks and uh, just put myself out there. And it's actually been because I so I'm from Canada and I um, went to grad school on the West Coast and spent a bunch of time living out there. And so the West Coast is a very liberal bubble. It was easy to tell people that, um, you know, where humans are changing the climate. But coming out to Texas was a bit of an eye opener for me. And there's a real diversity of opinions here. And I actually loved it because it made me have to do my research on on my arguments right and they would we would have debates and i would have to go and, and read about certain things that they brought up and i had to learn about things and that was really beneficial for me and my science so for me it was beneficial to have to to do all that work um, but there just aren't as many forums as i would like to try to reach people who are kind of on the fence right about climate change definitely and that's kind of i'm so so thankful that you actually took the time to come today and, and yeah. talk to me about this because I really like I'm so excited like this is big <laughs> Good. for you to come and talk about this um but let's let's dive a little bit more into your specific research so tell us a little bit about kind of a little bit of background on kind of what you've been working on I guess and how that's kind of progressed mm-hmm um, let's see. So most of my work is is trying to understand why glaciers move so fast. And when I say that, it's uh, you know it's not like they're a speeding car. Their fastest glacier in the world is like 15 kilometers a year, uh, pretty slow in the big scheme of things. Um, but they are speeding up over time. They speed up on multiple time scales: um, daily time scales, yearly time scales, decadal time scales. And trying to understand that variability, you know, is that uh, is the long-term variability related to short-term variability, right. that kind of thing. And so what I've been working on um, over the last 10 years really is looking at um, the processes that control fast motion, which are mostly at the bed. So if you think of ice sheets, um, you know, you think about them resting on bedrock or sediment at the bottom. But the reason they move fast is 
usually by large part because they have water at the base. And that water's there from either water getting in from the surface through cracks and these things called moulins, which are basically vertical pipes that can effect efficiently transport water from the surface to the bed, or because um, ice, as it becomes quite thick, actually lowers the melting temperature at the base, and you can have water available at the base if it's a very thick ice sheet, and so it just generates its own. You can also have high geothermal heat, which can cause uh, melting at the bed, or just friction can cause melting at the bed. So you can have water at the bed. There's water at the bed of most places on the ice sheets that are moving fast, all places that are moving fast. Um, and large portions of the ice sheets have water at their beds. And so I've been trying to understand how the water gets there and how the water system is distributed, which is a, a challenge because you can't see it. Um, so you have to use all kinds of different tools to do that. So I've done a lot of work on that. But now I've been kind of focused on, you know, these fast-moving outlet glaciers, they're called. They're outlets to the ocean. And they seem to be retreating and accelerating and thinning faster than uh, ice that terminates on land. And so trying to answer the question of why these glaciers are changing more, it's obviously something related to the ocean. Right. Uh, but we don't know why that is. Uh, we think we understand the process of, of what's happening now. But what we see is that when you look at the remote sensing history, which isn't long, it's only like 40 years or so because we just haven't had satellites going for super long. Um, what we see is that there's quite a bit of heterogeneity in the response of glaciers over time. So you'll see, you know, in an area of 15 glaciers, you might see most of them are retreating, thinning, and accelerating, but there's a couple that are thickening and stable. And why is that? Why is there a stable glacier right next to one that's thinning rapidly? And so we've done a lot of work um, sort of resurrecting this old theory from the 1950s and 60s that uh, was based on its perturbation theory, basically. If you perturb something, how does that perturbation translate or move along the glacier flow line? And it was just, you know, it's perturbation theory that's out in, in lots of different scientific disciplines, and this guy in the 60s applied it to glaciers. And he actually did it as a perturbation and accumulation. So you dump a bunch of snow locally on a glacier, and how does that spread out over time? Because glaciers flow like silly putty. And so we did the reverse, and we said, well, if you remove, in this case, we, we removed the, the glacier terminus, had it retreating like five kilometers. How does that create a thinning wave that propagates inland? And we found that um, res by resurrecting this old theory, that it actually depends largely, the propagation of that thinning wave depends largely on the geometry of your glacier, so where the bed bumps are. Bed bumps tend to um, cause, it's probably going to be, I don't know how complicated to get into, but um, so if you have, so the, the thinning of a, or the, the movement of this thinning wave is related to the diffusion of like a bump. So you have a bump on your ice sheet, and it, that bump can spread laterally. That's called diffusion. It can also move, um, translate side to side, and that's advection. Okay, now it's going to diffuse and spread out upstream um, because of the geometry, and then it's going to be limited from that because of advection, also because of geometry. It's probably way beyond <laughs> this discussion. Oh, that's okay. But uh, basically we found that the geometry tends to limit the upstream diffusion of these um, retreats. So the punchline really is that uh, in Greenland, at least, the geology is so complex. There's lots of um, uh, fjords and lots of bumps on these glaciers that are not 
we don't know how to explain why they look the way they do, but they're very different from one another. And so the reason why you get one glacier that thins next to a glacier that is stable is just because of the local geometry of the system. You may have a stabilizing bump for one glacier and that may be absent for the next glacier and that's why the same perturbation hits them but one responds very differently from another. And so that was something that was um, very illuminating to us because it, it kind of strengthens the argument that you know, that warming is actually causing these glaciers to change. And the reason that some aren't is not because, you know, the glaciers aren't changing or because global warming's hoaxed. It's because the local geometry is precluding that glacier from retreating. Right. And so that can be really helpful for trying to explain, you know, the, some of the variability that we see in the glacier dynamics. Um, so right now we're trying to take that theory and expand it across the entire ice sheet to find the glaciers that are contributing the most to sea level rise for the near future um, so that we can then sort of focus future resources on just a handful of glaciers that we need to monitor and reduce the uncertainties in terms of uh, total sea level rise in the future. So a lot of my work has been field-based in the past. And um, so I've done a lot of field work in Greenland and Antarctica trying to image the ice sheet bed interface, understand the dynamics of what causes glaciers to move fast and how they've changed over time. And more recently, I've gotten into the remote sensing archive because there's a wealth of data that's out there online that you can get for free and try to put some of the recent changes into some kind of historical context. Now, it's not enough of a historical context to be able to say that the changes are due to humans or not, but it's enough to say that the changes are uh, rapid and large, and they're, um, this is when they're happening, and here's how the pattern of change is looking. So that's kind of where my research is headed in the next like five years, probably, because we've kind of done this for a region of, uh, in Greenland, and we want to expand it for all of Greenland and Antarctica. I'm, I'm going to back up pretty far for you. And sure. This might be, this is a simple question, but I think an important one. What, how do we define what a glacier is? So glaciers are simply masses of ice that are perennial that flow. So you have to have dynamics, um, motion in the ice in order for it to be defined as a glacier. Um, it can't just be the ice on your sidewalk in Minnesota um, because that goes away every year. It doesn't move. There's a glacier that, um, you know, Mount St. Helens blew its stack like on the 1980s. And it basically lost a whole part of the mountain. And it uh, has subsequently grown a glacier in the crater. Uh, and that glacier, glacier was a little snowpack, and then it grew to be perennial ice, and now it's flowing. And so now it's a glacier. Right. Yeah, because I was thinking when you're talking about, you know, the, something that's kind of maybe, it's not exactly counterintuitive, but it's maybe not something that you really think about when you think about a glacier as far as, how is this glacier composed? Like, is this, like, what is the age? What is the, you know, is this snowfall? Is this, you know, what, in terms of, like, how these are created? Because do we have, like, data as far as the age of some of these? Or, mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's more ice core type of research. But do you have any, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, I mean, there are um, lots of ice cores that have been drilled in Greenland and Antarctica. Um, they're still searching for some of the oldest ice. Then they drill ice cores for all kinds of different reasons. Sometimes they want to get really high resolution annual records. And so they go to a place that might not be very old, but that has well-preserved annual layers. Um, 
but there's that way of getting at the age. The other way is looking at radar. And so there have been, uh, most recently, NASA has flown a lot of airborne radar missions over Greenland and Antarctica. Greenland has been more extensively covered than Antarctica just because of accessibility. And um, a colleague of mine and I, um, my colleague came up with this novel way to, so the, so the radar works, it's, um, ice is very transparent to radar energy and it can go all the way through and see the base. It can also see all the internal layers that get formed from changes in um, all kinds of things like dust particles and um, density and all kinds of different things can cause uh, these radar layers to appear. And they are called isochrons, meaning they're constant age surfaces when you see the layers. It's kind of like when you're driving in West Texas and you see um, a road cut that has layered stratigraphy in it. We can image the layered stratigraphy of the ice sheet without having to do a road cut through it. Right. And that's with this radar. Um, so it's a great instrument. And so the NASA's flown all over Greenland. My colleague came up with a novel way to um, extract the layer depth information from the data so that you could kind of automatically pick all these layers and, and have digital uh, you know, lines representing them. And then you can uh, do all kinds of stuff. You can model the layers to try to understand the flow conditions that got us to this current stratigraphy. You can do what he did, which is um, date them all. So you take where the layers have intersected ice cores, and then you say, well, this depth is that age, because they've said that from the ice core. Then we can extrapolate it all over the entire ice sheet. So that's another way that we can date the entire ice sheet. Um, for glaciers, there's probably less data because there's not ice cores on every glacier, and every glacier is a unique snowflake. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so it probably is mostly just based on some kind of you know back of the envelope calculation of um, you know what's the accumulation rate in this area and what's the ablation rate and melting rate and then you can figure out like how and how big the glacier is to figure out that its age probably fascinating um so let's talk uh, let's go into i guess greenland specifically because i think that it's a pretty due to the accessibility is kind of a hotbed for this research and, and whatnot so and going back to i think i think it's funny you know the the Norsemen called it Greenland, but it's entirely covered with ice. Yeah, it was. A, I think it was a trick. Right. Yeah, because I think, <laughs> and Iceland is, you know, has so much volcanic activity that it's warmer there. I don't know. It's yeah. kind of a funny little <laughs> historical uh, anachronism, but I think that's amusing. So, in terms of Greenland, I mean, does it? Ha is there an ice sheet covering the entire landmass, or how ex how extensive is it? Yeah, it's probably ninety percent covered in ice. Um, it has a lot of people that live there. It's part of Denmark, so it's like a territory of Denmark, but Greenlandic people are trying to get autonomy um, because as the ice is retreating, they see a lot of opportunities in resource development. Um, there's a lot because the geology is very complex, and I'm not a uh, rock geologist, so I couldn't tell you exactly, but I know there's lots of uh, minerals and um, that they want to try to extract um, and have the economic gain stay in Greenland rather than go to Denmark. Interesting. What... I don't even know what the I don't even know what the population of Green. I don't see that figure. You yeah. know, I mean, what is the population? I don't know in, what in the Greenland? population is, but um, I, I never I haven't even been to the capital, which is Nuke, but I've been to probably the next biggest city, and it was maybe I want to say like twenty thousand, maybe ten thousand people. Yeah, um, it's not a huge population. Um, yeah, I would, I would yeah. imagine so. And they're fairly stressed. 
population, I think, just because of the climate, um, the accessibility of goods and services is challenging. Um, there's lots of alcoholism, problems with education. Um, so they're, they depend a lot on fisheries and things like that. Do they, uh, what's the infrastructure like? I mean, are there significant roads? I mean, how, does, how do you get around? Uh, mostly with aircraft. So um, most towns are accessible through helicopters. Um, bigger towns are accessed with, uh, with fixed-wing planes. But, uh, and then there's jets that come into um, Kangaroo-Luswak, which is one of the bigger settlements, I guess. But it's actually an old Air Force base. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you know, this br- you brought up some points that remind me of some things that I've seen um, in terms of so the burning of fossil fuels like the soot accumulating on the surface of the glaciers and basically that, you know, uh, it's kind of a black or darker material. So it's absorbing more sunlight and that's creating those spots where it's melting down. I think there's... you. Oh, cryokonites? Right. Um, I don't study that in particular. And that is, that soot, I don't think, I don't know if it entirely comes from burning of fossil fuels. So right. I mean, that could be volcanic ash, too, yeah. things like that, natural Well, the, the globe is generally dustier during interglacials, during periods when ice sheets are in retreat, because there's just more landmass. And, um, and so you tend to have dustier ice sheets, like dust integrated into the ice um, as it's being created. Like as snowflakes come down, there's a lot more dust, and they create a dustier content in your ice sheet. Um, and so uh, it could just be dust, you know, from the Sahara, even blowing around the globe and settling on the ice sheets. Right. I'm not exactly sure where that stuff comes from. But yeah, that, the idea is that it's called um, dark snow or darkening snow. And as the, the other part of it is that, you know, you have, if you look at a map view of an ice sheet, well, Greenland in particular, Antarctica doesn't have this problem, but Greenland melts on the surface in the summertime. And that melting happens at lower elevations, right? Because it gets colder as you go up. Along the edges. Yeah, so all along the edge of the ice sheet is this area called the ablation zone or the melt zone. And because uh, temperatures are warming, that melt zone is going further and further inland or further and further up in elevation. And so you're exposing more of the ice. Um, You're not having snow covering it in over time. And exposed ice has a um, lower albedo, so it, it tends to absorb more incoming solar radiation than bright white snow. White snow is one of the best, you know, yeah, highest it's albedos. Reflect the light. Yeah. yeah. And so um, just by the very nature of reducing the snowpack, you're increasing the susceptibility to melt. But then you add a bunch of dust and other blowing stuff on the on the surface and you're also going to be decreasing the albedo and causing it to melt faster. And so there's lots of people trying to study that um, process. Because I think the, uh, maybe it was a documentary I saw, it was like these dark spots essentially were you know creating these tubes that would basically so it melts down to the base level you know and then is i guess the calving is what it's called whenever like the it's creating these like sections that are breaking off via this kind through this process is that something that you're familiar with i don't think that they calve off they're they're creating probably really small um drainage and so when you look vertically on an ice sheet then what happens is you have all the snow falling, right? And it gets compacted by multiple years of snowfall. So you can imagine your year one of snowfall gets progressively buried by multiple years on top of it. And as that first year of snowfall is getting buried and buried and buried, it, it metamorphoses or it gets 
compacted and it turns into something that we call fern. And the fern is um, a column of ice that is, or a column of like snow turning into ice, basically. Because the ice has a, has a density of 910 kilograms per meter cubed. Snow has a density of like 300 kilograms per meters cubed. So snow is a lot lighter. You have to compact a lot of it to get it to turn into ice. And so people are trying to study that fern column. Once it turns into ice, it's much harder. It's basically impermeable. So you can't get a lot of water going through it unless you have a fracture. So I think what they're probably studying are the kind of burrowing of these kryconite holes through the fern column and until it gets to the ice layer. You know, that kind of brings up something I hadn't really considered as well is just the, I mean, the tremendous amount of mass that these, you know, glacial deposits have in terms of, you know, hitting where you're actually hitting surface rock or, or what have you. I mean, the, the pressure and the weight of that alone is enough to, you know, create, that's, I guess that's probably the mechanism that creates the movement, right? Yeah. Uh, on, even on its own, out independent of, you know, whatever the outside mm-hmm. factors, the geological or weather patterns are, right? Yeah, glaciers are moving just under the flow of their own mass. Um, I've always wanted to create a horror movie about glaciers <laughs> where they advanced over a city and people were like, ah, they're moving so slow. It's moving at a glacial pace. We don't have to worry about it, but then it crushes an apartment building and it gets lubricated by the blood of all the people. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> I like this idea. <laughs> I would I would definitely be down to uh, partner with you and write. That would be f- like a funny kind of exploitation horror movie. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, ah. Well, do you know the XKCD? I think it's XKCD, the comics. I'm from, yeah. I'm yeah. definitely, I'm a big Redditor. So okay. I've seen, it's, I'm familiar. To so they have, he has one where he has the ice sheets, um, the, the actual thickness of the ice sheets over different major cities in the world. And it's, it's just kind of fascinating little cartoon because you can see like, Toronto, where's where, I'm, where's where I'm from, CN Tower is by, by far the tallest building in, in Canada, I think, at this point. And, uh, and then the ice sheets are just like orders of magnitude higher than that during the last ice age. I mean, the scale of these things is really fascinating. And to me, that's what got me really interested in studying ice sheets in particular, was just uh, the scale of how big they are right. and how much they can do. It's pretty amazing. I've always thought it's cool to see the power of them too, in terms of you know the grooves that they create in the, in the rock level. I mean, that's just crazy. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You think of, you don't think of ice as this powerful force yeah. necessarily like on the, on the human level, well, on the human scale. the earth's crust, like right. uh, the Hudson Bay in Canada, the big like, embayment in Canada is embayed because it's still rebounding from the last ice sheet removing from it. Actually, I had just read that. I thought yeah. that was pretty fascinating yeah. too. And ter- especially in terms of, you know, like I was mentioning the variability in sea level. Yeah. It's a lot of it is isostatic rebound from the last ice age. Very cool. Yeah. Um, talk, let's talk about Antarctica because that's like a fascinating, that's like an un, mm-hmm. kind of like the undiscovered continent, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's fully discovered now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, cause, uh, are you familiar with like the flat earthers? Like this has become a huge thing now is the flat earthers. You know, it's funny because <laughs> while I was away, um, I think it was Gizmodo wanted to interview me about what, it would be like if the earth was actually flat. <laughs> and I did not care to have that conversation <laughs> because the earth is not flat. And right. I don't, I don't know. I just didn't seem like it was getting the message out there right. <laughs> at all. 
It wasn't a very constructive conversation, so I passed along to a colleague <laughs> of mine that I don't like too much. <laughs> That's funny. Sabotage. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think there, so their argument is that there's supposedly there's this ice wall in Antarctica. Like a vertical wall? Yeah. Well, that's impossible. Like, <laughs> you can't have a vertical wall know, of right? ice. How big is this wall? I don't even know. But this is what I've heard. This is like their thing. Is there's this ice wall that we haven't, we won't fly, you know, NASA won't fly planes over. I don't know. I mean, obviously, these people are Oh, I know what they're talking about. Insane, they're talking but... about the hole at Pole. So, well, maybe they're talking about this. So NASA has been flying these missions called Ice Bridge. So um, from 2002, Three to 2009, there was a satellite called ISAT that, um, when it was launched, had a bunch of problems, and so it had a much shorter lifetime than they had anticipated. But it measures with a very precise laser the elevation of the Earth, and its mission was to measure the elevation changes of the ice sheet. But it died very quickly because of these problems, and so they have had a plan ever since they knew the problems happened to have ISAT too, and that's going to get launched next year. Um, if I could knock on wood somewhere. <laughs> And, I think the legs are wood. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and so because there's a big gap between when the first one died and when the second one's getting launched, they had a program called Ice Bridge to bridge between the two missions. And that was an airborne campaign where they just flew over the ice sheets. Uh, it was a huge amount of money, but they had a number of instruments on board besides just a laser sensor uh, to get a whole suite of measurements. And it really gave us a huge leap forward in our understanding of, of like the physical properties of the ice sheets. And so um, IceBridge operating in Antarctica is a lot more challenging because there's not a lot of platforms to operate out of, not a lot of bases to operate out of that are um, easily accessible. So what they did is they went down through uh, Punta Arenas in Chile and then to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is like the next, it's easy for these small uh, fixed-wing aircraft to, to make that small land or jump in the ocean right. rather than flying um, from New Zealand down to McMurdo, which is a mu- need a much bigger plane for that. Um, so, okay. So then now they're in the Antarctic Peninsula and they have to kind of leapfrog to get to different places in Antarctica. And one of the things they targeted for this mission was getting this circle around the, um, South Pole circle of data. And that's because when the satellite, it's kind of hard to do this without visuals, but when the satellite launches, you can think of it like a spirograph, you know, spirographs, it just is going around in this polar orbit continually, but there's always a place on the earth on the poles that it's missing data and you get this kind of circle around the pole um that's like this polar hole of data where we just don't get data now and and uh it's kind of unfortunate but it's just sort of the way that this the geometry of these satellites can function best and so um what this ice bridge mission is doing is trying to get measurements in places that these two satellites will be able to also measure very precisely so that we can have the continuity over this really long time period so the pattern in which IceBridge is collecting observations, not, it doesn't always make a lot of sense visually to like an outsider. It makes a lot of sense to the scientists. We're trying to have these repeat measurements year to year in the same locations. Um, but it, it forms a, like literally a circle of observations around the South Pole. And so there is a limit. Like they haven't actually flown over the South Pole, I don't think, because there's, there's no need to. We're never going to get observations there. There may be other people that that do stuff there but it's a pretty small geographic area it's not very changing so it's um it's not expected to do a lot it's more interesting to map the periphery where most of the changes are going to happen right, that makes sense and so it may be that these flat earthers see <laughs> this at uh, this circle as being the wall that nasa doesn't go beyond right. maybe 
That makes a lot of sense. You could be right there. I should uh, look it up. And <laughs> right? <see. laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I haven't looked. I've just heard this uh, kind of on the podcast circuit. Anytime uh, some flat earther comes out, it's like there's supposedly this ice wall that we can't cross in Antarctica. That could be. But that's all. I'm not, you know, <laughs> I don't waste my time. <laughs> I go down enough other rabbit holes, so I don't really delve into the flat earth too much. But yeah. Um, I think I'd like to kind of, I mean, we're, we're getting close to an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually like to just hear, maybe finish up talking about your experiences. I mean, just even going to Antarctica mm-hmm. and what that's like and like sort of even just the like day-to-day like life, how, like food, clothing, like what is transport, like how does that all work? And like just, you know, the, this maybe a, an idea of the temperatures there and like the weather and that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sort of the experiential element of that. Yeah. So I have a love-hate relationship with it. <laughs> I loved it for many years and went back. I think I've been like a dozen times. But um, as I got older and got married and had kids and had other commitments at home, I just didn't want to spend the time going there because it takes – so very – it's lengthy logistically. Oh, so if imagine. you go for a six-week field season, you're there for like three months or a little bit longer, depending on the weather. Um and a large part of that, I believe, uh, is because of the way logistics operates. It's uh, a company called CH2M Hill, and they, they get contracts with the government to run these logistical operations out of McMurdo and South Pole for the U.S. government. And um, it's a huge infrastructure, and I think it's too big, um, personally. And Greenland operates very differently, and I kind of prefer it because you can do, I can do all my logistics at home from my comfort of my own house and then fly to Greenland with my own food that I've packed right. and know that it's all going to be there and be on the ice sheet within a couple of days. In Antarctica, you have to use the food that they provide that is often pretty old. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I don't, yeah, I won't even get to like <laughs> cliff bars that oh, are man. like two years old oh, and God. frozen are really hard <laughs> to eat. <laughs> oh, um, but then you have to go through, you know, they're big corporations, so they have lots of safety uh, training they want you to do. They have, like, a garbage school for all the recycling, which is great if you've never been there before. Um, but I haven't been down for, like, a really long time now, so I'd have to go through, like, all these schools all over again. Even, like, a school to figure out how to get your cargo into a system. And it's just, honestly, I hate it. So. Right. So that part of it I don't like, but I'll try to bring myself back to like my first <laughs> couple of years there when I, I was really fascinated by the topography because I'd spent time on alpine glaciers and um, I fell in love with mountains. And when I had the opportunity to go there, I, I thought it was mostly like this, you know, fun adventure, but I didn't think scientifically I would be as like, tr- like I would change courses as much, but it was just to me, it was like taking all the stuff that you learn about these little bitty alpine glaciers that are only like 100 meters thick to now we're on an ice sheet that is hundreds of kilometers wide and, you know, a thousand meters deep and it's moving a thousand meters per year. It's really amazing to have that experience. And it's actually, so I go to, I used to go to kind of like the banana belt of Antarctica. It's not very cold. I would say it probably gets down to like minus 15 C or something like that. Greenland, I found much colder because we, we often went in the springtime when there was a lot of snow in order to safely travel on the surface. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and so uh, it's really flat. I've often gone to the places that don't have mountains because I'm interested in the, the actual ice sheet dynamics. And it has, if you've ever been to West Texas, it kind of has that subtle beauty of West Texas where 
there is topography if you're there for like a week or longer you can kind of see the subtle topography of the surface and changes in the shifting snow on the surface are very mesmerizing it's like watching you know sand blowing um you can see huge weather systems come in and go and i don't know it's just it's really uh, a fascinating place to be and the other part of it that i've always liked just for field work in general is that you tend to you know back in the day before you could pre like I don't know, I'm old, so you couldn't um, pay all your bills ahead of time, you know, or have them on auto pay. You had to send in checks. (laughs) And so I would just send in checks for like a four month period. I would do all, I would actually move out of my house because I was in grad school and I didn't want to pay rent. Right. And I would put all my stuff in storage and like, yeah, I would just, (laughs) I put my whole external life on hold and I, I did so much work ahead of time so that when I was in the field, you just lived for that day. Like right. you didn't have to think about the external world at oh, that's all. Awesome. And well, it was a really wonderful experience and well worth all the work for it. But now I just can't, right? I just can't do that. God, that is a huge inv- time investment. I can imagine. What about like, what's the kind of flight? Let's say we're traveling out of Austin. How do we, how do we get to Antarctica? Yeah. Like what's that flight like? You know what I mean? Or you can even just go like, maybe you want to give us an example of just one trip for example, like what your flight path was even like. So um, with the U.S. program, you fly through Los Angeles to New Zealand, and you'll go to Christchurch, New Zealand, which is in the South Island of New Zealand. And they have um, the U.S. Antarctic program operates a building out of there, and they give you all your clothing that you need so you get outfitted. And um, they put you up in a hotel, and and you go to New Zealand, which is a wonderful place to visit. uh, And so it's very comfortable. Right. And then you get on a C-130, an army plane, to go down to – well, actually, I think they have faster ones now. So they – to go down to McMurdo. And they have the C-130s. I don't think they do them anymore because they used to have this, like, point of no return. Whereas if they they found that there was too bad weather to proceed further beyond this point, they had to do a turnaround. So sometimes you would fly for five hours, turn around, and fly back for oh, five man. hours, and you'd be back in Christchurch. Oh, gosh. I've done that a couple times. They call them boomerangs. Um, but now they have uh, bigger jets, I think, that can go all the way um, without having to refuel. And so uh, you land in McMurdo, um, you get on this huge bus, and you get driven into town, go through all these orientations. And the town is like a 1,000 people, um, a big scattering of buildings. There's a New York Times article about it recently, actually. And um, so then I go out into the deep field. There aren't that many people that operate in the deep field, but our group tended to do that. And so it's usually like four or five people. And we would um, typically fly on either a C-130 that had all of our science cargo on it. So it'd be like this big empty belly of a plane with your with a couple of pallets of science and personal cargo, and then the four or five people. And you could go up in the front cabin and look out and all kinds of fun stuff. And then you would land, and they would often do these, oh, what did they call I forget what they call them. And they, they would do these, um, these cool landings where they would land the plane, they would lower the back hatch, and then they would quickly accelerate, and the pallet would just shoot <laughs> off just the back. Just slide off. <laughs> and they did that, and then you could get off the plane, and you would typically camp in this, this like landing site for a while. And the landing sites are often staffed because they have many scientists that go out to these these camps and they're like often there's some scientific hub so sometimes they're ice course sites where there's like ice cores are very labor intensive so there's tens of 20 scientists that work out of them um so you would land at this base you would get reoriented pack all your cargo as needed and either do a twin otter flight out of there to the site that you want to go to twin otters are 
um, are like much smaller planes that you have to do like ferrying of flights. Um, and we often just drove. So we would take um, skidoos or snow machines out and then we would bring like chains of sleds and we would pack all of our gear on these sleds and just drive just out the wagon. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that way we could do these traverses and hit all the sites we wanted when we won without having to depend on twin otters or weather. Because weather is a big problem. People don't want to fly in bad weather because it's a whiteout and you can't see anything. Right. And I don't blame them. Um, and so, but we could always operate without having to do that if we just did traverses. And so we would just do these traverses and carry all our camping stuff and set up camp and do our science and then move on. And you have to call in every day and tell them you're safe and call sometimes and tell them, you know, your, what your plans are. Um, and then you get picked up and reverse the whole thing and go back. So when you're saying call, calling, is that, I mean, does this, is that a, like a standard cell phone or do you have like a sat phone or how does the communication work? Yeah. There? So in the beginning it was, um, uh, what was the radio? Um, it was a kind of radio. I can't remember the name of it now, but all the radio nerds out there will know what I'm talking <laughs> about. They're probably screaming it at me right now. Uh, but it, it like bounced off the ionosphere, I want to say. Um, and so it was like this really long range radio that you could use. But they found that there, it was like during sunspot cycles or during something, there was a lot of ionospheric noise, and that made it like a brownout, so you couldn't, you couldn't use these radiochromes, and you're required to do a, a check-in every day um, of who's alive. <laughs> and uh, everyone always was alive. And, um, and so when they had all these repeat brownouts, um, satellite technology was just taking off for funds. And so they started to like have those creep in more. So now I think the standard comms are probably through sat phones. Cell phones wouldn't work. Right. Yeah, I guess distance-wise and line There's of no sight. Cell, yeah, yeah, line of sight too. And no cell towers. Man, what, a, what about like internet access? How does, is that, I mean, is I that even a thing? <laughs> No, when I've been in the field, there hasn't been internet, but um, there are some satellites. So I haven't been in the field since 2007, so it's been a while. Um, but there are some satellite-based technologies for getting internet via your sat phone. But I think it's, you know, it's not like you're looking at a computer. Right. <laughs> or even like your cell phone. I think it's a lot more basic than that. Yeah, kind of like a command line style, like yeah. DOS or something. Maybe. Yeah, it's pretty basic. <laughs> Did you ever wake up... Um, with a nightmare there, like you're in that movie, The Thing with Kurt Russell. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that movie? Yeah. No, I never did because <laughs> that movie takes place inside a lot. Like in, That's true. In dark structures and it's 24-hour daylight. And so, um, yeah, it's just a very different setting. Oh, My I mindset, it doesn't go to like dark, scary places. <laughs> That's good. Uh, I didn't even think about that though, but What's it like to, I mean, to adjust your circadian rhythm to like this sun? I mean, yeah, that's such a different experience. It's hard to even, like, if you've never been there, yeah, I don't even know how to, like, oh, that's just crazy. I mean, the sun does, I mean, yeah, it'll lower in the cycle. Horizon, so right. it lowers and rises, and that actually has a huge impact on the temperature. And you can feel like evening is like chilly. And you, but the thing is, you go by um, the local time in McMurdo and it doesn't matter where you are on the entire continent, you're still using this local time in McMurdo, which is the local time in New Zealand. So it's not the actual local time. Right. And so you could have like dusk kind of temperatures at morning and it just is like weird. Um, but I would pull, I used to wear a hat that I could like pull down over my eyes at nighttime to be able to sleep. Right. Yeah. How long would it take you to get into a 
like to where you could fall, you know, fall into a rhythm of sleep? Um, for me, it was mostly the cold that kept me from sleeping well. So I would say two weeks it takes your body to acclimate to colder temperatures. And I had a whole system um, for, <laughs> for it. I just did a lot of hot water bottles at night. And so I would put one between my crotch and two under my arms or by my feet. My butt and my feet <laughs> would always be the coldest. And as long as I could get those warm, then I could sleep through the night. Right. I didn't think about even oh. so what kind are you camping out on like the surface of yeah. the ice itself or is there you're on the surface so like yeah it's snowy so it's on top of this fern column which is like 100 meters thick and on the very top is like a dense snow yeah very cold snow so it doesn't it's not wet snow it doesn't like like you can't make snowballs out of it very right. easily so like a i mean what kind of structure are we talking about? Is this like a tent situation or is this something yeah. more a tent? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we used, um, there's like three kinds of tents. So the, there's like, like a typical mountain tent, like a dome kind of thing. But I really grew, grew to like these things called Scott tents, made, named after, um, um, oh, I can't remember, Robert Scott, Robert Falcon Scott, who made it to the pole second after Amundsen and then died back on the way back. Um, he had these kind of uh, tripod things with four poles. They're really easy to set up because they're, they come in, the four poles are all attached to this canvas fabric. And you just simply pull the four poles out and then you stick floor in it and you enter through this tube that's like a foot and a half off the snow surface. You kind of like shoot yourself <laughs> in. And then you can actually set up a cot that gets you up off the snow. It's, you can stand up inside of it, which is great. You can I took a box like, like from science stuff and I would put it in there and put all my clothes in there. And like, it was my little hideout and we'd often share those. And, um, and then we had these like a mountain tent that was, uh, like a really big kind of mountain tent. I think it was like 12 feet long for cooking in. And we'd get these, um, floors made for it that had just a thin plywood top and then a, a foam, like a styrofoam bottom so that we could have it be fairly warm to sit on. We just sit on boxes and cook with like um, propane stoves, um, melting water every day, um, and have our food buried in the snow to keep it all frozen. <laughs> and you're you're eating a lot of frozen food. I mean, there's very there's no fresh anything, but <laughs> so it's like, only six weeks. So like, what what kind of what was your meal like? What was your average meal night? Oh, some kind of meat. Um, we'd have pizza night. That was always fun. Frozen pizza, obviously. Yeah, yeah. frozen crust. <laughs> and then we would make the rest. And we had these little collapsible ovens that you'd put on. Um, we do like pot roasts and stews and things like that. Yeah, that's kind of conducive to the. I would. Right my favorite was uh, like fry. I would fry cheese upside down <laughs> on a bagel. Oh, nice. So it was like this really gooey melted bagel. Lots of butter and chocolate. It was good. <laughs> Sounds awesome. I think the worst part is you just don't bathe at all. Really? For like, I, yeah. For six weeks? I once or didn't just, bathe for three months. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, what is it? I can't go like a day, Yeah. maybe half a day, depending. Well, it's different when you live in a hot climate. <laughs> right. Um, I guess that's true. So everyone around you stinks, for one. And so you don't actually smell it until you come back to McMurdo oh, and you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I reek like... <laughs> Someone once told me they walked in the room when I was getting uh, changed from being in the field, and they said, I can smell you from the door. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would imagine, too, with the amount of clothes that you have to wear, too, it's yeah. just like, uh. It's gross. <laughs> um, so I had uh, baby wipes that I brought, but those freeze, and so you, I put them in my sleeping bag at night, and they would thaw, and then I could use them in the warming to just clean myself. 
I brought, <laughs> my friends would laugh at me, but I brought a different pair of underwear for every day. <laughs> so I had this little sack of underwear. That um, also freeze their like yeah. <laughs> little sheets. Like. <laughs> and then I had, I would braid my hair. I had longer hair and I would braid it in two braids so that, because it got so greasy, I would brush it every day to get rid of all the dead skin. And that sounds super gross. <laughs> right. And then I would braid it so that it would just be flat. Because if, if you didn't, you would end up with this kind of, I mean, a huge dreadlock. And it just feels really like it hurts to, to move your hair if yeah. it's stuck in one place for too long. Makes sense. Yeah, it's pretty gross. <laughs> oh man, see this. This could be like a whole podcast itself. Just like these <laughs> little, like because I think it's kind of fascinating, uh-huh. honestly. Just like the day to day grind of like existing in a climate like that. Yeah, is you know it takes your toll. It takes a toll on your body too. Because I remember coming back from the field, and all I want to do is just lie on the couch for like a good two <laughs> weeks, and my husband would be like come on, let's go. You're back. Let's go do stuff. And I'd always just be like, no, nah, man, I'm staying I'm still here. frozen solid here. Let me <laughs> yeah, thaw out a couple I weeks. I think it's just that you don't have a couch, right? Like you can't comfortably lie down and just chill out for a while. So it's kind of nice to do that. You don't have to go into this, but I just have the idea popping in my head of like, what's going to the restroom like? <laughs> Oh, yeah. So there's lots of options. Um, <laughs> copious options. Here. Well, because the world is your oyster. There's no one around. Um, so we in camps, we would dig a, a, like a pit, you know, a pooper scooper. And then we would dig this pit. And then we had these little wood boxes with the styrofoam seed on top. Okay. And we'd put that on top. Okay. And there's only four people. Um, no one really cared. So you just would poop out in the open with your butt exposed <laughs> if you wanted to you could build a snow wall around it um maybe that's the snow wall people are talking about <laughs> right um but and sometimes that i've seen like camps that had tents around them but those tend to just get stinky um i think being a female is harder for peeing right <laughs> for sure yes yeah, and because you actually need to so i had these i would search for these kind of pants the gore-tex pants that had a zipper a full-length zipper going down the side and then you could just lower that flap and squat without <laughs> having your entire butt exposed. Right. But I was always jealous of all the dudes because they could just go pee without right. having to pull down all their clothes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, what I'd like to do is I think we've had a pretty good run. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want to do is if you have any of your work or research that would be, you know, that's not behind a paywall or, you know, that's in a peer-reviewed magazine or journal, where can we access your work? Um, I think on my website, I have a lot of papers linked locally to okay. like a storage. Um, but this one I was talking about, about the geometry just came out in nature geoscience. I'm pretty proud of that work. It was a, my grad student that, that led it. Um, and I can always, if you have a website, I can give that to you. Okay. Um, I, I don't have one for the podcast, but what I'll do is uh, I usually will have a blurb mm-hmm. that I'll, you know, I'll include, I'll link to your website and include some details there. So yeah. that might be a good, uh, a just good way to point people to. But um, like I said, I think we've got some great content today. So I think we're at a good stopping point. I don't want to take up, I know you have obligations later this morning. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, once again, Dr. Katanya, thank you so much. Yeah, this was so much me. fun good. Um, and very enlightening. Good. I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again.